For behold, I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. This is the word of the Lord. Most of you know that for more than 40 years I've been doing whatever I could to foster better understanding between Christians and Jews. And a few years ago, Muslims were added to those conversations. One group I've been a part of for more than 25 years meets late on a Wednesday afternoon once each month. I've discovered in all these conversations that there are four cataclysmic events that define Judaism today. The Jews count their history back almost 4,000 years to Abraham and Sarah. But there are four major events that outdo all the others in their history. The first is the 400-year enslavement in Egypt. There's no question about that. Moses on Mount Sinai, seeing a burning bush, being given a new name for God, being sent back to Egypt, facing down Pharaoh. God delivers plague upon plague upon Pharaoh until he finally says, Go! God parts the waters for them to pass, feeds them in the desert, brings them right back to Sinai for the giving of the Ten Commandments. That exodus is the first major event. Number two, Babylonians surrounding the city of Jerusalem in 587 before the Common Era, breaching the walls, taking everything of value out of the temple and the palace, setting fire to both of them, tumbling down the walls, burning the gates off their hinges, bringing all the king's sons in in front of the king, killing them all, gouging out the eyes of the king after he has seen all of his sons killed and force-marching the best and brightest away to Babylon, where they were enslaved for 50 years until Cyrus, king of Persia, overran Babylon and let the Jews go home. Number three. The destruction of the second temple in the year 70 of the first century of the Common Era. There has never been a Jewish temple on top of the Holy Mount since that time. There are two Muslim mosques, a mosque on the top of the hill, not temples. From that day forward, Jewish worship was changed forever. There has never been sacrifice offered by Jews since that year 70, more than 1900 years ago. The synagogues became places of teaching, of instruction, of questions and answer, not sacrifice. And the fourth one, of course, is the Holocaust, where six and a half million Jews died in just a few years at the hands of the Nazis. Those four cataclysmic events define much of the literature of the Jewish people. And all this fall, you and I have been dealing with the second of those four. That fall in 587. In the scroll of Isaiah, our best scholars believe we have the works of three different writers. The first 39 chapters written by a prophet in the 8th century who is trying to convince Judah that the same fate that befell their northern cousins of Israel will befall them as well if they do not seriously turn again to their God. They do not. 
The destruction comes in 587, more than 130 years later. We believe chapters 40 through 55 were written by that person, whose name we do not know, in exile in Babylon. Then Cyrus became king of Persia, overran the Babylonians, let the Jews go home. Not nearly did go home, all go home. They had established themselves. The Persians made life better for them than the Babylonians had. Many of them chose now where they'd been born to spend the rest of their lives. Those who did go home found things in horrible shape. Still just a pile of rubble on the Temple Mount. Nothing had been rebuilt of a royal residence. The walls are still tumbled down. The gates still burned off the hinges. The city is absolutely vulnerable to everything. The indigenous people have taken over all the watering holes, all the vineyards, all the best grain fields. It's a terrible time. And into that situation, a third writer, whom scholars call Trito, or third Isaiah, we have his words today. I've underlined four things. First of all, your Revised Standard Version, which I like very much, the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, we Methodists believe it is the best on the market today, combining both readability and accuracy. But for some reason, those who translated this version of the Bible decided to leave out a word, hidu. It's translated for us almost always as behold. But when I was reading this text earlier in the week from the Tanakh, the translation of our American rabbis, they have it in theirs, that this passage from which I read begins, For behold. Luke loves this word. We're going to spend the next year, starting two weeks from today, dealing with the gospel of Luke. And he uses the word over and over. It means almost, and would you believe? Are you paying attention? Sometimes in the evening, Gail and I eat our dinner and watch America's Funniest Videos while we eat. You know, if we've had a long day, I've been dealing with people's troubles all day long, sickness and death, you turn on America's Funniest Videos. I've learned two things right off. Never buy your grandchild a piñata. <laughs> Never buy your grandchild a trampoline. But one night, Gail and I were watching, and a little troop of ballerinas came onto a stage. They looked like they were about three. But they've got on their tutus and their leotards, and they're going through a little routine when suddenly one of them, right in the middle, stops. She steps up in front of the others and does like this. And then she goes... And then she goes... And what we were told later was she's looking at her granddaddy who's been invited to come and watch her and he's talking to the woman who's seated next to him. And so she is saying, why did you come here? Why are you not paying attention? And God is saying to the people of Judah and to the people of Boston Avenue, are you paying close attention? I have something very important I'm about to say. Number two, I'm about to do a new thing. I'm about to do a new thing. Everybody wants a new thing? Raise your hand. Everybody raise their hands. Everybody wants a change? Oh, no, we don't want change. 
You know the way I do sermons. If you've listened to me all these years, you know that Monday I start with a new text and I've got a stack of commentaries on my desk. I start with this much material. By Tuesday, I'm down to this much material. Wednesday, I'm down to this much. Thursday is write the outline. And Friday, the best illustrations I can find. So for this week's sermon, it's Friday morning. I'm looking at the morning newspaper and I'm looking for the word change. Guess what I read? There are about to be big changes at Penn State University. One of the coaches, a defensive coordinator, has been accused of molesting at least eight, maybe ten or more little boys. He's the only one who seems to have done this horrible thing, but a lot of people seem to have covered it up. People who knew about it and didn't pick up the phone and call the police. So there are about to be changes at Penn State. Thousands of alumni are innocent. People who love the university, love what it stands for, have rooted for their favorite football team all these years, who were not a part. But far too many who were a part of putting what they thought was the well-being of their university above little boys who were being grievously mistreated. Somebody's going to have to make a change. I read down a little farther. Ole Miss has fired their coach. Houston Nutt. We used to read a lot more about him when he was just across the border here in Arkansas. Coached Arkansas for a long time and had a lot of really good years. And then four years ago, things not so good. Things really got off to a lot of bad press, a lot of bad publicity. And he decided, okay, it's time to leave Arkansas. They were... A lot of them glad that he did, and he went to the University of Mississippi. Right away, seemed to have some success. Ole Miss was holding its head up again. They haven't had really great teams since Archie Manning was their quarterback many years ago, and they thought maybe Houston Nutt was the right guy for them. But now he's been there four years, and before yesterday's games, thus this weekend, he was 24 and 23. Now, that'll work at SMU. We're used to losing, but it won't work at Ole Miss. You know, we'll put up with a coach forever if he can win half of them, but not Ole Miss. No, they want to win more than half. And so the athletic director had just announced Houston Nutt is out when the season's over. And here was what Houston Nutt said. That means not only am I out, it means all my staff is out. That means all our spouses are out. And it means all our children are out, change is never easy. Number three, before they call, I will answer. Before they speak, I am listening. One of the scholars I read this week said he believes Treat to Isaiah was thinking about the Garden of Eden story when that talking snake suddenly came by told Adam and Eve God was a liar. He had told them they didn't need to eat off that tree. They would die when the truth was, according to the snake, if they ate from the tree, they'd live as long as God, be as wise as God. They didn't call out to God. They started eating the fruit. 
And when God came looking for them, they hid. They didn't call out. God called out to them, Where are you? But surely one day, Trito Isaiah is saying, We will call out to our God. Surely we will. And God wants you to know He's ever more ready to hear than you are to pray. And He knows what you need even before you ask. Martin Sheen was born with a last name, Estevez. His father's name, Francisco Estevez, the family came from the far northwestern part of Spain. His father had told Martin many times about the famous pilgrimage from the Pyrenees Mountains, 800 kilometers down to Santiago de Compostela, the cathedral where Roman Catholics in Spain believe the remains of St. James are kept. Yeah, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder. Martin Sheen's been through a lot the last few years and decided at one time he'd make that trek. He was already 62 years old, had already had some health problems. 800 kilometers, that's 500 miles. Long way to walk. A 19-year-old grandson said he'd go with his granddad, and one of his fellow actors, Matt Clark, said he'd go with him. So they decided they just had a couple of weeks, and they couldn't walk 500 miles in two weeks. So they would rent a car, and one would drive, and the other two would walk. Then they would change drivers. But they wouldn't walk alongside each other so that they talked. They would walk maybe 100 yards ahead, the other 100 yards behind, and not talk. Just walk and think. Several million pilgrims have made that walk in the last thousand years since it was first claimed that the remains of St. James were entombed at Santiago. Right up the street, our neighbor at Holy Trinity Episcopal Church had a sabbatical a couple of years ago, and he decided he would make that 500-mile trek. You should have heard the description of how hard that is. It's a long way to walk. But Martin Sheen said, day by day, hour by hour, as he walked and walked and walked and thought about all the people and what they were looking for, what they were hoping for, and finally they got to Santiago de Compostela inside the church. They discovered there was a great instrument of some kind strung on a wire. It had incense in it, and they set fire to it, and it came sliding down that wire with smoke going all through the cathedral to drive out evil spirits and cleanse the place for the presence of God so that God could hear everyone's confession and God could grant to everyone forgiveness and a new life. Martin Sheen said it so changed his own life. He talked to his son Emilio about it. He wrote a script and they've now done a movie shot entirely on the Camino, the way from the Pyrenees to Santiago. The Lord had been waiting to hear from Martin for years and years. Finally, he cried out. Number four, rejoice. There's a new series on ABC, Channel 8's carrying it, called Once Upon a Time. It has sort of a strange premise. All the fairy tale characters that you can think about. I mean, who are those crazy people dressed up that you see at Disney World? Snow White, Seven Dwarfs, Geppetto, Pinocchio. Pick one. 
They're all going to be in the series. But an evil, wicked witch has put a curse on all of them, sent us them to be human beings in a little village in Maine. And a woman bounty hunter named Emma goes to this little town looking for one particular person and begins to sort out who these people really are. That woman, having great difficulty birthing a baby, is Snow White. What about the dwarfs, and what about Geppetto, and what about a kid who lies and his nose grows? What about that? One of the characters says, but just the thought that somebody might live happily ever after is a really powerful thought. Rejoice, he says. Be joyful. Dr. Fred Craddock said he was invited to preach at a church up in the mountains north of Atlanta where some really poor people live in North Georgia. He preached that morning, that afternoon. He left the motel in plenty of time to get to the church, and shortly after he was walking up the sidewalk to the church, two church vans pulled up, and teenagers started piling out. He said, this awfulest-looking bunch I'd ever seen. I mean, they looked like they'd been drugged through almost anything and everything in the world. They were sort of falling out on the church lawn there, leaning on their bedrolls, waiting for their parents to come and pick them up. I walked out and asked one of these kids, where you been? Well, it was spring break. But they had not gone to Fort Lauderdale. They had not gone to Corpus Christi. They had not gone to Cancun. They had gone on a mission trip to some of the poorest people up in the mountains to help them work on the little church. And he said they had worked long hours. Now, Dr. Craddock's been preaching along in this sermon, you know, about how important it is that if we're trying to take life, we're losing it. And if we decide to lose our life for God's sake and for the sake of others, if God becomes the center, if the other becomes the center, how wonderful life can be. Well, he said to this teenage boy, <laughs> You look worn out. He said, well, they've been getting us up before daylight. I mean, I don't swing a hammer very often. I don't saw anything very often. I don't carry lumber very often. I'm sore. And we stayed up too late talking to each other, and then it'd wake us up before daylight to start working again. I have never been so tired in my life. But it's the best tired I've ever felt. And Dr. Craddock said, the word in the Bible for the best tired you've ever felt is joy. 